Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, as you might know, this slide, The Coming of a King, is not the title of our study through Matthew. We're going to take a few weeks uh, away from Matthew, and so you can take that bookmark out just for a couple weeks as we prepare for the celebration of Christ coming into this world on December 25th. The four Sundays leading up to that, we're going to be in an Advent sermon series called The Coming of a King. And I'm going to take a different spin on it, how people typically would lead up to Advent. Normally, the sermons preached in a uh, a Advent sermon series would be the themes that we're doing for our devotions, right? Hope, love, joy, and peace. But I'm going to take a different spin on it. I want to look with you in these four weeks to the, at the Christmas story told from different angles. And I'll give you the titles now. And just kind of as a fun game, I'd like to hear guesses later on from you. So come tell me your guesses on maybe what text we'll be looking at in the coming weeks based on the titles I will give you now. The titles of the sermons. Classic Christmas. They all start with C, just because I wanted them to. Classic Christmas. Cantata Christmas. Coronation Christmas. And then today... It's a giveaway because it's in your bulletin already. Cosmic Christmas. Cosmic Christmas. I'll say them again. Classic Christmas. Cantata Christmas. Coronation Christmas. And today is Cosmic Christmas. Christmas told not from an earthly lens, but from a heavenly lens. Of a spiritual battle raging 2,000 years ago. Out of Revelation chapter 12. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 12. Anyone ever heard a Christmas sermon out of Revelation 12 before? Me neither. So here we are. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, And cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished. For 1,260 days. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. So the other weeks, Cantata Christmas, Classic Christmas, and Coronation Christmas, are Christmas told 
from an earthly lens. This, though, doesn't tell Christmas from a ground-level view, but rather a heavenly view. It's the same story. That is, that the sin of man led to our need for a Savior, what the Old Testament would call the Messiah. Men, in every generation, has perpetually been in this cycle of sin, which we cannot get out of, like a hamster wheel you can't jump off of. We are stuck in sin, and we need a Savior to pull us from this horrible cycle, to save us from it. And so God himself came as a real, validated man in history. Not a fable figure, not a fiction character, but a real life, authenticated in history, man who lived and breathed and walked. He came himself, the God who created us and breathed life into our lungs, came and walked, born of a virgin. And his purpose was to live and die for the sinners he created. To save them from the wrath we would deserve from him. Because he is a just God. So he came to take that place, to take that wrath upon himself from him that we might be saved, his creation pulled from that cycle to enjoy paradise with him, free from the stain of sin. The other weeks tell this same Christmas story. This week tells this Christmas story. The difference is the angle that it's told from. What we just read from Revelation 12 is a heavenly perspective Christmas story, a spiritual battle raging at the birth of a baby who is born to rule with a rod of iron. So I want to walk through Revelation 12 with you this morning. In three stages, three scenes, if you will, in the act or the play of Revelation 12, 1 through 6. The first stage, first scene, is Christ anticipated. I'll just give you the headers now. Next will be Christ's adversary, and thirdly, Christ's arrival and ascension. Firstly, Christ's anticipation. Christ was anticipated and longed for. Verses 1 and 2, let me read them again. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony, giving birth. Christ, or Christ is anticipated. So who's this woman, right? That's the question. That's the question as we're reading this and looking at this. My first question is, who is she? The Catholic Church would answer Mary. She's the woman who gave birth to the one who would rule with the rod of iron. Makes sense. But a more faithful to the Bible answer is Israel. The woman is Israel. Three ways we can know and we can be confident that this is indeed Israel. First, we see in the Old Testament that Israel is often called she. That Israel is personified as a woman. I think Lamentations chapter 1 verse 3 does this 
Well, it's, it's all over the Old Testament, but I'll just give you one verse as an example. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her punishers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So first, God's people have been personified as, or described as, a woman. But more than that, which that's also true in the New Testament, right? When we move into the New Testament, Christ's bride, Christ's bride, he came to die for her. So that's the first thing. But the second way we can know this is Israel, and they, I think, compound and they build on each other, is Israel often pleads for a Savior, begging for God to come and save her or redeem her from the hardships that she's facing. And oftentimes, these pleas for a Savior are described as crying out in birth pain. I'll give you another example, Isaiah 26. This is in Micah 4 and multiple other places, but I'll just give you one. It says this, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs, when she is near of giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. This is the people of God. They were like a pregnant woman crying out in birth pains. We were pregnant. We writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. They're crying out in birth pains, in agony, and looking around and saying, God, where are you? Where is our Savior? Think of um, whenever Sarah was giving birth to our second son, Elias. You'd think that I'd learn how to be a good bedside coach after the first. The second one, I'd be, right? I'm a, I'm a veteran at that point. Um, but when I was raised, my, my dad would try to push me through pain by, anyone else have this? We're saying, it's a mind game, son. It's a mind game. You've got to push through it. It's, in, it's all in your head. I transfer that to her. I've got my hand on hers, and I'm like, you've got this. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. <laughs> I'm glad I pulled back a little bit because I almost got decked in the face. <laughs> She's like, no, you didn't. I did. You don't remember. <laughs> But any woman out there, I, I, I bow out, I admit, you guys know, I don't know, but anyone that's ever haven't bir given birth before, you know the agony and the pain, right? So do Sarah and I. We can relate to you, but, no, she can, I'm sorry, she can relate. <laughs> but this just, this, this gives us the imagery to really understand, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful imagery of Understanding how desperately these people needed a savior, right? The agony that comes with this, and the agony that comes with anticipation, when is he going to come out? Am I done yet? How many more pushes, right? You just can mentally understand this imagery of God's people pleading, God, when is this going to be over? When are you going to send him? When can we finally breathe? So, God's people has been described as a woman, but more than that, a woman that's agonizing in birth pains. 
But still, at this point, being called a she and crying out in birth pains could just as easily be Mary. Right? We've proven nothing against the idea that it's Mary at this point. I think what really gives away the identity of the woman in Revelation 12, verse 1 and 2, is her description. Let's go back to Revelation 1, or Revelation 12, verse 1, and we can see that she is described in a certain way. It says that it was a woman clothed with what? The sun, the moon, and she had a crown on her head with 12 stars. Sun, moon, 12 stars. Now, this isn't accidental. This isn't random. John is writing to people who knew their Bibles. And he knew they had in their minds Genesis 37 because they just knew the story of their people. In Genesis 37, verse 9, this is talking about Joseph speaking to his father who is Israel, Jacob. Joseph is talking to his father, Israel, and his mom, Rachel, and his 11 brothers. He's the 12th, and he dreamt something, and he tells them his dream, and this is what he dreamed. He told it to his brothers, and he said, Behold, I have dreamt another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are bowing down to me. This is, this is the people of Israel. Israel himself, Jacob, and he had 12 sons, Joseph being one of them, and then the 11 brothers. So here's this woman who personifies this entire picture. Where she's clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet, and she is wearing the 12 stars. We're talking about the people of God here. And so going back to the text, Revelation 12... Verses 1 and 2, we still have to ask, even if we know who she is and what she's going through, why does it matter who she is and what she's going through? What's the significance here? Well, in one sense, this is what Christmas is all about. Right? Celebrating that these birth pains, these longing for a Savior to come, the pains have been relieved, and the Savior has come. The child has been born. She no longer has to agonize for his arrival. He has indeed come. That's what Christmas is all about. God's people have cried out for a Savior all throughout the Old Testament for generations and generations. And Christ came to save his people from this agonizing need for a Savior. remember whenever I was in high school, I had a close relationship with my youth pastor. I just regularly talked with him, and I think that just uh, reminds me of how Trent has a good relationship, he and Maddie, with their youth, and just talking through things with them, and, and I can just see m myself in the youth as they talk with him, because I would just always go to my youth pastor and talk, and I remember I regularly struggled with just, am I saved? I was, I was so burdened by my sin, and how I just kept falling into sin, and it weighed on me so much, and I was just always told the gospel. I'm a youth pastor. 
He would just say, Isaac, you aren't saved by your works, though. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by Christ's finished work on the cross. And amen to that. And yet I still just was burdened by my sin. Sick about it. I was eaten up with guilt. I had heard the gospel. I needed to trust in the gospel. It's a big difference hearing it and really hearing it. I don't know, maybe that's you. Maybe you're 40, 50, 60, and you're wrestling with exactly that. You've heard the gospel a million times, and yet you need to hear the gospel. Sick about your sin, what you've done. Well, your gut is right. Can I just say that? Your gut is right. There is a real problem that your sin causes. It divides you from a holy God. And that's exactly why he came, to deal with that sin that you still wrestle with. Are you torn up because you think that there is no way that God would accept you? That's why he came. You're experiencing the agony that the woman was feeling, longing for a Savior, and that's why the Savior came. This is the heart behind Christmas. Our Savior came to relieve these agonizing and painful realities of our sin and how it separates us from God. So in one sense, as we read verses 1 and 2, we can see that the pains have been relieved. The Savior has come. The answer has been given. Yet in another sense, even after we trust the gospel, even after we know that our Savior has died for our sins, and it's not about our works, it's about his finished work on the cross, it's already happened, still, we're still agonizing. We're still crying out for our Savior to come again, right? We might be saved, our souls might be secure, we might have comfort about our salvation, and yet, we still see disease all around us that are killing millions and millions. We see natural disasters wiping out full communities. Families being torn apart and we can see, we have a front row seat to how corrupted and demented fellow man can be. And we weep. We should weep. We agonize like the woman. So in one sense, the birth pains have been relieved. The Savior has come. And yet, we still have pains agonizing for the Savior to come again. To give full relief. That's the already not yet reality of the gospel, isn't it? That yes, our need has been provided 2,000 years ago. The pains have been relieved, but the pain has not been removed fully yet. Right? We have peace with God, perfect peace with God. There is no chasm between him and his saints who trust in him. We have peace, and yet we long for peace in all kinds of ways still to be achieved broken relationships, divorce, stress, and angst. We do not always live in perfect peace. We long for that. 
and we have redemption. We are new creations, and yet we long for perfect redemption where our bodies do not ache. We do not grow old. We do not get sick. Our minds do not degrade. We are a new creation, yet we long for our perfect, redeemed, glorified bodies. We have joy. We have lasting joy. And we're living that out every day as we look to our Savior and we sing to Him and we know the joy of a Savior that's already saved us and yet still we long for that perfect pleasure where we don't cry anymore, where we don't have to face tragedy and heartache. We have the pains relieved and yet we long for the pains to be fully gone. And you know, you don't need to be a member of God's people to cry out for the Savior and these pains to be fully gone. We know from Romans 8 that even all of creation cries out. For we know that the whole creation has has been groaning together. That's saved, not saved. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Look at that. Until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is exactly what John is talking about in Revelation 12. All of creation groans and longs for what Christ can provide. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, let me speak directly to you, just a direct line of contact, communication to you. Please see your agonizing need for the Savior and how He alone provides that need. I don't know, and I won't pretend to know, your history, your experiences, your desires, your goals, and the hurdles that you have to cross every day to fight for those goals and aspirations. I don't know and I don't pretend to know anything about what you're going through. But what I do know, because I know that you're a creation in a fallen world, I know this about you, that you don't have, if you don't have Jesus, peace. You don't have joy. Not like I have joy. Not like God's people has joy. You don't. You don't have peace. You don't have hope. And that isn't to anger or frustrate. I hope that that's to illuminate, to open eyes and to open ears, and that you would see the agonizing pains of this world and how a Christ was born 2,000 years ago to relieve those pains now and eventually perfectly for you. These realities come exclusively through him who was born and died for our sins. So this is the first stage of the scene here in Revelation 12, is Christ anticipated. Secondly, we see Christ's adversary, Christ's adversary, his enemy. That's verses 3 and 4. Let me read it. And another sign, okay, this is stage 2, scene 2. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was 
to, about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour him. Firstly, notice cha- uh, verse 3 there and how the dragon is described. Seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. There's a lot of interpretations on what these might mean. Suffice it to say, I think we can understand from this that he is very deadly. He's very deadly. The seven heads probably speak to how cunning and wise Satan is. Don't underestimate the tricks of the deceiver. He's been deceiving people for thousands of years. He is cunning. He is wise. And we're fools if we think less of him in that regard. So he has seven heads. He has ten horns. I think from this we can just understand he's a powerful predator. Like we see elsewhere that he is a roaring lion seeking to kill. Powerful predator. Seven diadems. He's very alluring. He is enticing What he has draws us in. He was a beautiful angel at one time, and now he wears diadems that would allure us and think, I want what he has. But I think this also shows not only that he is deadly, a powerful predator, and alluring and enticing just so to deceive, but I think this also shows that he loves to mimic Christ. How do I get there? How do I get there? He loves to mimic Christ. If we go back in Revelation, the same book that we're reading out of, Revelation 5, look at how Jesus is described earlier. It says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, and he was standing as though it had been slain. This is Christ. How is he described? He had seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits, God sent down into heaven. Seven, seven, seven. And here is Satan trying to look as much as he can like Jesus. Even later we see that it's the lamb who's crowned. And here's Satan wearing a knockoff diadem. Satan only knows to take his heresy, to take his lies, and just repackage it with Christian wrapping paper. They say, look, it's the same thing. I've got the same thing. I'm the same. Here's a warning to you, church. Please hear it. Beware of something that is almost Christian. Almost Christian is not Christian at all. Beware of something that is almost Jesus. It's not Jesus at all. The church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints talks about this Jesus, but also you can become a God. Almost Christian, not Christian at all. We know the Jehovah's Witnesses, and yet Jesus was created. This is not the Jesus we serve. Even in Catholicism, you must 
go tell your sins to a priest because he is a representative for Christ on earth. So go and confess your sins to that priest. And until you confess to a mere man, you're damned in your sins. That is not the Christ. Our Christ is seated on the throne. Almost Christian is not Christian. Even progressive Christianity, you've ever heard this phrase, progressive Christianity. That is that Jesus loves love. He is love, and he loves love. And love is love. So there is no off-limits love. All love is love, says progressive Christianity. This is a false Jesus, false Christianity. Beware of almost Christian. That's packaged in Christian wrapping paper. This is the scheme of Satan from the beginning. So this first, notice how he's described. But secondly, notice his actions. If we go back to the text, go to verse 4, notice his actions. First, his action before the birth of the Savior. That is that he swept the stars out of the sky and out of heaven with his tail. I think this is likely referring to all the fallen angels that he brought down with him when he rebelled. One-third of the angels. Again, just to not go back and hearken on the same point that I've already made, but look how deadly this predator is. He convinced angels to follow him. Don't speed up here. Stay with me. He convinced angels. Angels who were in the perfect presence of God. That he had something they need. Does that not speak to the danger of our enemy? And he didn't only do it once. It wasn't like a a, a random fluke. He convinced angels who were in the perfect presence of God. And then humans, he came to them and he said, watch, I'll do it again. Walking with God himself in perfect paradise, and yet he convinced them they needed something they didn't have. Please see how deadly our adversary is. What makes us think that even if you walk with God today and you have his his presence with us, that you can't still be deceived? Do not let your guard down. He is still seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. But by God's grace, God preserves his saints from complete and final deception. If you are God's people, you will not finally be deceived or led astray. He will persevere you and preserve you. I love this quote from a Puritan, William Secker like reading him lately, says the devil would soon put out our candles if Christ did not carry them in his lantern. It's true. By God's grace, he preserves his saints, and even if we might be led astray for a time, he is good to persevere us, and like the father who has his son come back, he will bring us back if we are really of him and from him. So first, notice his action before the Savior's birth. Let's go back to the text again. Notice his 
action before the Savior's birth. He takes his tail and he sweeps out all the stars, or th- a third of the stars from the sky. But his second action is his plan of action. that he hasn't done yet, but he plans to do when the Savior is born, and that is to kill this baby when he's born. You see, Hayton is Hayton. Satan hates. Satan hates Christmas because he knew that it was God putting in position to checkmate him. He knew this was it. This was the fullness of time coming that he might be destroyed and conquered by the one prophesied long ago who would crush his head. He knew that was what Christmas was all about. God was setting up to checkmate him. And so his strategy was, I'm going to get him before he gets me. You see, Jesus was prophesied to destroy Satan. This was actually a part of the first pronouncement of, uh, uh, of judgment on sin that we see in all the Bible. If you go back to Genesis 3, go to verse 15. This is God speaking to the serpent, Satan, the, the, the great red dragon. And this is what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Talking about her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That is to say that the Savior will send a deadly blow to the serpent. And he will merely bruise his heel. This was a prophecy from a long ago. But it's also remembered and then spelled out in the New Testament. Go to Hebrews chapter 2 and we see this. Very clearly and very explicitly, since therefore the children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan knew these prophecies, he knew about these realities, and he wanted to get Jesus before Jesus got him. And so what do we know happens in the story? We know of this King Herod who just came up with this idea to go and kill all the baby boys because he cared about his power and his rule. That's not a coincidence. There aren't coincidences. There's God's providence. And we know that often Satan works by influencing sinful men to carry out his plan. Herod the Great did want his throne secured, and so Satan capitalized on that desire of his to seek out his desires to also kill the the boy. So That's the second stage. It's Christ's adversary. Thirdly and finally, Christ's arrival and ascension, verses 5 and 6. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God, to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she is to have a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. It's very quick, isn't it? In verse 5, that Christ was born, he lived for some time, and he ascended to be with God, all in one verse. 
John didn't really spell that out very long. It's kind of just smushed in there in verse 5. Evidently, though, we can tell the, the dragon's plan failed. He was waiting there to capture the child when he came out. And he would devour him. But verse 5, that didn't happen. And though Jesus did die, uh, he did eventually die, which made it look like Satan did win. We know that the ascension to paradise, to be with a holy God, his father, it proves otherwise. Satan did fail. And we can be confident that Christ's mission was a success. His work on the Christ or on the cross worked. Satan's plan failed. Salvation was achieved. And through faith, we can be beneficiaries of it. So what's left of the woman? God's people. Well, she's left on earth for the time being. Verse 6. She's in the wilderness. We know from biblical imagery that the wilderness was a place of waiting and wandering until we were able to enter the promised land. That is our inheritance, what God, God has promised us, that we are already citizens of and yet waiting for one day to receive. We're expected hardships in this wilderness, difficulty, longing for him to provide for us every day the bread that we need and the water to drink. We are to expect difficulties and to endure hardships. And yet, we can trust that God does sustain and keep his people while in the wilderness, no matter how long it may be. So, she's in the wilderness, and the time for 1,260 days. Is that random? I already said it. God's word is not random at all. It's not coincidental. It's a deep well of significance if we're willing to mine it and search it. 1,260 days. You can check, on, check me on, on that now or just trust me later. But 1,260 days equals three and a half years. Three and a half years. And this is the time frame where Elijah was sustained during a famine. And there was no food. There was no water. And he needed God to sustain him, almost as if he was in the wilderness. We know this from James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, you could also say 1,260 days, it didn't rain. It was like he was in the wilderness. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 1,260 days also equals, in months, 42 months. Again, the Bible is not random. Want to hear a fun fact? If you go and look all throughout the Old Testament, how many campsites Israel had while in the wilderness for 40 years, can you guess how many campsites they had? 42. 42 campsites. So what is being said here in Revelation 12, 6 about this woman who's going to be in the wilderness needing God to sustain and nourish her for 1,260 days? Well, 
the time frame between the first advent, that's Christmas, and the second advent, that's still to come, the return of our King and Savior, that time frame is going to be a wilderness. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And we're going to need God to sustain us and nourish us like he did Elijah and like he did Israel. And in this time frame, God will never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, he will indeed sustain us as we sojourn. And we wait to enter the promised land where we are true citizens of. So. This Christmas season, you may be hurting for various reasons. You may feel the agony that comes with this fallen world in an array of different experiences represented in this room. You may be hurting. You may feel the agony of the birth pains waiting for that Savior to return for us. And in those birth pains, let us reflect on the coming of our Savior. He did come. He did provide salvation. He did provide relief from the pain, comfort for his people, hope, peace, true joy right now. And he plans to come again in order to once and for all relieve his bride of the agonizing pains that we experience in this life. Amen. You can pray for us. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com.